well, let me draw your attention to Philippians chapter 4. And we are going to conclude uh, this time that we've spent in the letter to the Philippians. And so we are going to look at the last four verses of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so I'm going to read something to you. Back, I don't know, it's a little more, a little more than a week ago now, that uh, I did a funeral for a lady from Mount Enterprise. She had been a member there at the First Baptist Church for a long time. Uh, to say that she was a, an eccentric would be an understatement. She was eccentric and she knew it and she reveled in it. She really was. Uh, always drove a red car. I remember she bought one, I don't know, two or three years ago and crashed it and so she went out and bought her another red car. She usually carried a red walking stick and usually showed up on Sunday wearing a red dress. You had to notice her. She was, she was 90 years old when she passed away. Uh, she had been a librarian down in the Houston area, for a school librarian down in the Houston area for something like 45 years. Uh, I have never known anyone that was remotely similar to her. I mean, she was just different. Now, I don't usually read letters uh, to you that, that other people have written to me. But I can tell you this, she wouldn't mind me reading this letter to you. She was always writing us letters, giving us phone calls. She'd blow her horn every time she passed the house. A lot of times she'd pull in the driveway and knock on the door and tell us a story of something that happened to her. But I just got to pass this home. <coughs> this letter was dated December, the, I mean, December 31st, New Year's Eve, 2019. Dear Brother Joe and Beverly, this is just another little episode in the perils of John. Her name was Margaret John Gatley. After Sunday's little episode with my AFib, I was feeling so much better, so I say to myself, Self, you can do a New Year's dinner even though you are not going to have company. So, I bought jalapeno black-eyed peas in cans and a nice head of cabbage. I had ham chips I will use in both and cornbread mix. Got ready to cook could not find where I had put the black-eyed peas. Looked and looked and finally found, found them and got the pot. Decided to sit and cut up the cabbage first. Could not find where I had put the cabbage. So I looked about with, without any luck, decided just to go ahead with the peas. Could not find the peas again. Uh, <laughs> found the cabbage though and sat down and cut it up. Looked for the peas again. Lucked out and found them this time fixed them and put them on, got my cornbread muffin pan and could not remember where I put the cornbread mix. And finally, I found it, I made it, I cooked them all together and tonight, delicious. I will have to say that during the mess of my losing and finding and losing and finding, I got so tickled, I just sat down and laughed and I mean so hard that tears rolled. It was just so crazy. Happy New Year 2020, and may God continue to bless. <laughs> I read that at her funeral. <laughs> and we all had the same reaction to it because it sounded just like her. She was never married, so she never had any children. She just had a passel of cousins. I think she was kin to half the people in South Russ County. But uh, I just thought I'd pass that on to you. I still have a bunch of letters that she wrote to us. Just... She would just decide to put pen to paper and write. You know, 
we live in an age where we have forgotten the art of letter writing. We really have, and it's a sad thing that we have. And I realize that once we reach a certain age, we tend to reminisce a lot, and we gripe about the way things are, and we think that they ought to be the way that they used to be, and I'm just as bad as anybody, but I really miss people writing letters. Uh, there was one friend of mine from years ago, he and I spent a lot of time together on rivers, canoeing up and down them, and uh, he loved to write letters, and he would write me letters, and the things were just absolutely hilarious. I still have two files of the letters that he wrote me over the years uh, before he lost his mind writing letters to me. I guess it is bad for you. Today, we don't write letters. We rely on email messages or those infernal text messages. And the thing, and, and of course, and then we had Twitter and Facebook and all that junk, which I've never used that type of stuff before. But the thing that I don't like about communicating that way is that it just comes across to me as being so impersonal. There's nothing personal about a text message that doesn't start off with dear so-and-so and love or grace and peace so-and-so. You know, letters are something that are special. And I guess maybe that's one reason that God used this medium that we call letter writing to communicate New Testament truths to us. Paul was a letter writer, and he wrote a bunch of the letters that we have in the New Testament, and he was concluding this letter to the Philippians. The church at Philippi was a happy church. It was a church that he had a very special relationship with. It was different than really any other church that he had a relationship with. These were special, special people. He wrote them a letter to kind of correct a little problem with a little disunity there between two ladies. It was one that was in charge of the spaghetti supper and the other was in charge of the mission banquet. You know, they had a little problem over something. He was going to iron that out. But you really couldn't tell that he was ever unhappy with the church. He loved that church and he loved those people. And now he's coming to the close of the letter. And like any good letter writer does, he signs off. And this is what he's going to sign off with. And my God, well, well verse, I said verses 20. Let, let's go and read verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And I think we could say amen to that too. Let's think a little bit about this. I'm not really going to tell you anything new, just maybe some reminders and little bitty things that we can find in this. These are the things that really struck me as I was looking at this close to the letter. And in verse 20, we're introduced to this one idea of the glory of God. In verse 19, <clears throat> in verse 20, it says, To our God and Father be glory forever. In verse 19, we see the word glory used, but it's used kind of in a little bit of a different sense. They're related, but in, he says that my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In verse 19, the word glory really refers so much to the sum of all of God's divine perfections. In that sense, glory is the revealing of his power, the revealing of his greatness, his purity, his awesomeness. And we see this idea connected to glory in other places in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, we see that we get to read about this vision that Isaiah had 
where he saw these seraphim going back and forth and, and calling out back and forth to each other. Each seraph had six wings. With two he covered his feet. With two he covered his face. And with two he flew. And they went back and forth saying, Holy, holy, holy is the, the whole earth is filled with his glory. You know, and you get to thinking about this, you know, that was saying that the, if they hid their faces, and it reminds me, I think I told you about this before, but there was a, a Reverend Brown in, in Orange, Texas. And I remember he was called upon to pray at a Good Friday service. And I remember how he started prayer. He had one of these rich baritone voices like James Earl Jones. And he said, Our Father, before whom angels hide their faces. Well, the reason that they hide their faces is because of his glory. Another thing we see is in Luke chapter 2. It talks about where the shepherds were abiding in their fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And what shone round about them? The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. That was the glory of God that it makes you want to hide your face too. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, uh, the, 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 uh, the apostle John says that, uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Oh, you know they did. They saw His glory whenever He turned water into wine at a wedding banquet. Whenever He took a little boy's lunch one time and fed 5,000 people with it. When He stood outside of the tomb of a man named Lazarus and ordered him to come out after he'd been dead for four days, and they saw the glory. And they saw His glory whenever He died on the cross. They saw His glory whenever He... He rose from the dead. And I'll tell you what, you might think that they weren't afraid at times like this, but they did get afraid. I guarantee you they were afraid whenever they saw him after he was risen from the dead. This is the kind of glory he's talking about. Now, whenever we think of God's glory in that way, then we begin to realize what it is meaning whenever it says to him, be the glory. We can't add to his glory, but whenever we say to him, be the glory, it means our praise is something that His glory calls for. When we begin to understand something of the glory of the Lord, then we want to praise Him. So in verse 20, the word glory refers to the praise that we render to Him when we know Him for who He is and what He has done. And when we do that, we realize that we owe Him glory and praise. So how do we do it? I guarantee you, you can't go to the bank and borrow some glory. But what it is is this, is whenever we glorify God, we praise Him when we pray. We really do. Our prayers come to Him like incense. When we glorify God, we sing. And you don't have to sing great. You don't have to have a good singing voice. And you can screech and squawk and still be glorifying God. I was talking to someone about this the other day. Is that there was a, a little church or a little community outside of Nixon, Texas. You don't know where Nixon is. It's in South Central Texas, kind of east of San Antonio. And, but outside of Nixon, just a few miles outside of town, there was a little community called Union Valley. And as I recall, you could stand on the front porch of Union Valley Baptist Church and you couldn't see a house for a while. And uh, I got to preach a revival there once. And whenever I went there, and this was just a simple little old church, and there was one gal on the piano and I think maybe someone on the guitar and whenever it came to sing, man, they let the fur fly with the hair. It was something to hear that. I loved it there. And that was giving glory to God in their songs of praise. 
There were some of them that were really good singers, but some of them sang about like I do. But anyway, but they were praising God and giving glory to Him. We, we give glory to God whenever we testify about things that He has done and whenever we talk about how much He means to us. We glorify God whenever we live as those people whose lives have been shaped and transformed by Him, by Him who is our God of glory. And remember this about this, about this idea of God's glory. God delights in His glory. I remember several years ago at Piney Woods Encampment. Matter of fact, you may remember when this guy was there. Neil McClendon, do you remember when he was there? And I remember in one of the sermons he preached, the only thing I ever remembered that he said was that he talked about this idea of God's glory and he said, you want to know one thing that God really loves? He loves His glory. And He does. God delights in His glory. In, in the 22nd Psalm, verse 3, it tells us that He sits enthroned upon the praises of Israel, upon the praises of His people. He sits enthroned, in a sense, upon the praise that we offer up to Him. If He doesn't love His glory, why in the world did He create this marvelous universe? He didn't need it to make Himself any better or any greater. Why did He do it? It's because He loves to put His glory on display. If God does not love His glory, why else did He create mankind in His own image? If God does not delight in His glory, why else would He redeem sinful man if it were not for that? Therefore, God does deserve our glory and our praise. He deserves it in the good times. He deserves it in the hard times. He deserves it in the days of our youth. He deserves it in the latter years of our life. He deserved our praise yesterday. He deserves it today. He will deserve it tomorrow. And when we leave this world, we will still be giving Him glory forever and ever and ever and ever, world without end. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what Paul wrote. I don't think I can word it any better than that, although I tried. The next thing we see in here is something what I would call the community of the saints. Now, the people in Philippi here, he refers to them as saints. Now, if you have a new, a new international version, they're referred to as God's people, I believe. If you have an NIV. Does anybody have an NIV with them today? Anybody? Okay, does it say God's people there? In that? Okay. The reason that they, that, that's a paraphrase right there, but the reason that they paraphrased it is this, is because a lot of times we attach a meaning to the word saint it's not quite accurate. We usually think of a, of a saint as someone who is kind of like a super Christian, uh, you know, that just kind of lives on a, in a different dimension than what the rest of us do. Uh, I remember whenever Richard Nixon gave his resignation speech that was on television, and Richard Nixon said, my, my mother was a saint. What he meant was that she was just an outstanding Christian. That's what we think of with the term saint today, but literally, what a saint is, is someone who is one of God's holy people. In other words, uh, they were holy ones, people that are set apart. As a matter of fact, they're called in the King James Version, especially there in Exodus 19, where God refers to Israel. He said, you're going to be a peculiar treasure to me. Now, I've known some really peculiar people in church. But what it's talking about, the idea of peculiar doesn't mean weird right there. What it means is something that is different, something that's special, something that stands out. And, and so God's holy ones are those who have been set apart 
is a special treasure for God's use. Now, and so whenever what he called the Christians at Philippi, when he referred to them as saints, could be applied to every single one of us in here today who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, what it means is this. We are a saint, and if we are saints, then we have been redeemed, we have been remade, we have been regenerated, and that is to reflect God's holiness. Thus, the idea of saints are holy ones. Remember this, we do not become a part of, of God's people in order just to be religious, but we become and are called and made a part of God's people in order to reflect the holiness of God. Our lives should be a demonstration of God's love, His mercy, His purity, and, and our character should always illustrate God's character. That is another way that we give glory to Him. Notice that Paul refers to these people here whenever he says this to send his salutations. He says, verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Now, he does not say greet all the saints. And now in the New International Version, again, it does. It's greet all of God's people. But really, that's, like I said, that's a paraphrase, and it's not bad. But, and you might say, well, what's the difference between saying greet all the saints and greet every saint? Well, what it is when we think of it, the way that the, the apostle worded it to say to greet every saint, this is a greeting not just for the church as a whole, but to every single member in particular. Now, there were times whenever Paul would sign off in a letter and he would mention certain people and mention them by name. Right here, he doesn't. You can say, well, maybe everybody was just kind of a so-so and we wouldn't have known who they were. Oh, yeah, we would have too. You remember Lydia? You've read about Lydia in the Bible. Lydia was one of the first people that the Apostle Paul met whenever he came to Philippi. He and Silas were, were there, and they went down alongside the river one Sabbath day morning, and there was a prayer group going on, and Lydia was a part of that prayer group. She invited him over for, for supper or dinner after that. Uh, there was also a particular jailer who got the bejeebers scared of, out of him one night whenever there was an earthquake and all the doors came open, the shackles fell off their arms, and he comes running up to Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? But Paul doesn't mention the jailer. He doesn't mention Lydia. He just simply says, I want to greet each and every one in that church. No one is singled out. No one is admitted. And there's a reason we could say for that. It's because every person in that church was important. Not everybody there was a Lydia. Not everybody there could be a Philippian jailer. But everybody there was important because they were part of the body of Christ. And that's really the way it is with us today. I know that, you know, some, we, we hear this all the time. We say, well, I really can't do much of anything. Well, you know what? You can do a whole lot more than what you think. And you may be doing more than what you think. Everybody in God's house is important. Everybody has a role to play. Now, here's another thing, is that Paul also sends greetings on behalf of someone else. He says, uh, uh, right in here, he says, all the saints greet you. In other words, all of God's people that are with me greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, the Caesar he was talking about, because there was a bunch of Caesars, Julius and Caesar and Augustus Caesar and all that. This Caesar 
according to the way we can date this letter, was Nero Caesar. And if you want to find out more about Nero, you can find out that he was one mean, nasty, crazy piece of work. He really was. He was just nutso. And he was a mean dude. And here we see people who are sending their greetings who are members of Caesar's household. Now that didn't mean his mother was sending a greeting or his sister-in-law was sending greetings. It had nothing to do with their DNA. These people who were a part of his household may have been cooks, may have been jailers, may have been guards, may have been the ones that took care of the horses that belonged to Caesar. You know, that's what these were. In other words, these were people who did grunt work for Caesar who had come to know Jesus Christ, maybe through Paul or maybe even before the Apostle Paul got to Rome. But these were believers in Jesus Christ. Now here's an interesting thing. You have three particular groups pictured here in this passage. One of them was a Jewish missionary named Paul who had come from Tarsus. Another one was, he was writing to a Greek church in Philippi. And then he was saying, there's some Romans here with me, and they say hello. In other words, here was three different groups that were all part of the same family. And I think this is an interesting thing. There is a kinship that we have with all believers in Jesus Christ, despite all the things that might make us differ from them. We have a kinship with the young and the old. We have a kinship with the wealthy and the poor. We have a kinship with the educated and with the unschooled. We have a kinship with the black, white, brown, yellow, and red. It doesn't make any difference what you look like or what language you speak or where you came from or anything like that. There is a kinship that exists among us, and it is something that's such a wonderful thing. Uh, you know... This spiritual kinship is something that goes outside the bounds of the fellowship or the church that we're a part of. And you get to sense this whenever you go to other places. Uh, you know, I'm certainly not a world traveler. I'm not, you know. I've gone to a few places. Every time I did, it was on some kind of mission work or something like that. That's really the only reason that we've gone, I've gone overseas. You know, the first time I went to a place, it was in Great Britain. And I went there to be a part of a group, and I was supposed to preach. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I had, never, I had never been anywhere that at least didn't border on Texas. I mean, and I, I, was, I was really nervous. I was just scared about this. And, and, but I went there to preach, and that was what I did. But I found out that whenever I went to preach, that these people did not treat me like I was a hick from East Texas, what they did was, was that whenever I preached, they embraced me. I know after one of the times that I was there and I preached for, I guess, uh, every service for two weeks in one church. And I remember, I, I really felt so intimidated by it because I was here in a place where giants had stood at the pulpit. And I mean, those Welsh preachers at one time, I mean, they were powerhouses. And I just told them, I said, I, I just feel so intimidated. I feel so unworthy to be here. And I said, and plus you have to listen to my voice and listen to the way that I talk. And I'm sorry, but that's just the best I can do. And I remember after it was all over with, there were some of them came up and said, oh, but we like to hear you talk. <laughs> and the thing was, was that there was a kinship that we had that didn't think anything about accents and where we had come from. I went to Guatemala once on a mission trip, and that was with Piney Woods. We went there and... and 
I was working with a guy named Alex and we were building stoves that burned wood. You know, Alex knew two words in Spanish. I knew a handful of words in Spanish. I mean, two words in English. I knew a handful of things in Spanish. Remember, I went to, we went to a Sunday night worship service at a church. And I could understand a little, I was able to understand enough to know what the preacher in the sermon was talking about. And then we had the Lord's Supper together. And you know, the thing was, is that, you know, you could forget for a moment that you were in a strange land with people that you couldn't always understand. But there was a kinship that existed among us during that time. One time I went to Doyle Summerall to Ukraine. I really didn't want to go there because, I mean, this was going to be really different. I went there, and I was supposed to do Bible studies with a bunch of men. And uh, we finally got to kind of the last day that we were going to be together. And I'll, I'll admit, a lot of those people in Ukraine, they were very hesitant to get close and to be very, show any kind of affection. You know, they was kind of, kind of a, wanted to keep you at arm's length. But as we, after as days passed by, they began to get a little closer and a little closer. And then I remember the last day, they were asking me questions in a group, and I had to answer them. And I mean, and there were some of those questions that were tough. I mean, people fight over them over here. And I was, I was up there trying to explain. I said, this is where I stand. You may not agree with me, but this is where I stand because I think this is what the Bible teaches. And as I was doing that, and the interpreter was talking, I noticed some of those guys in the back, and I mean, some of those dudes were big. I mean, and, and they were talking to each other while I was, while the interpreter was talking, they were going, and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, what have I done now? After this is over, they're going to take me out and break my kneecaps or something. And I said, I whispered to the interpreter, I said, what are they saying? And he said, oh, they're agreeing with you. And I felt a whole lot better after that. <laughs> but after it was over with, they came up and this big bruiser of a guy came and threw his arms around me and just about squeezed the pudding out of me. But the thing was, was that I really couldn't understand much Russian. And I still know three Russian words. I know da means yes, net means no, and divai means hurry up. And that's all I remember. Oh, slava bogu means praise God. I know that. I couldn't really communicate with them that well, but there was this thing that brought us together because we were all God's people, whether we were Roman, Greek, or Jewish. <laughs> I loved it there. The last thing I want us to consider is the grace of Jesus Christ. Here it says to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I know we talk about grace a lot. The basic meaning behind grace, as far as in the New Testament word for grace, and once again, I don't want to sound like a smart aleck, but the New Testament word for grace is pronounced charis. The New Testament word for joy is kara, and they're related terms. In other words, grace means, and grace, down bottom line, just means a gift that brings joy. And that means that the grace that God shows us is this, is we cannot earn it no matter how hard we may work for it and for how long we try to work for it. We can't do enough good to wipe out our sins. We can't do enough good to make God indebted to us. There was one old Scottish preacher that said this, grace is love exercising itself to inferiors and to those who deserve something sadder and darker. Grace is a wonderful thing because grace makes us sure of God's mercy. 
That grace gives us confidence and it drives away our doubts and our fears. If you think you're going to get to heaven by your own goodness, you're always going to have some doubts. Did I do this well enough? Oh, I slipped up yesterday. I don't know how this is going to work out. Trying to work your way into heaven is going to lead you down a lifetime of doubt and worry. But whenever you trust in the grace of God that we find in Jesus Christ, you can realize that there is no end to God's grace in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can know that one of these days we'll stand before our God and be welcomed because of grace. Grace is found in no one but the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, that old Scottish preacher said, Jesus holds the keys of the storehouse of grace. The river of the water of life flows where he turns it on. And you know something? We can't exhaust this grace. If so, Paul exhausted it a long time ago in these letters that he wrote. Every letter that Paul wrote ends with something about grace except one. And believe it or not, it's the letter to the Romans. Now, why that was different, we don't know. But every other letter has grace in there at the end. And maybe it's just a reminder to us that there's plenty of grace for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And there's plenty of grace for you, and you, and you, and you. Aren't you glad that that fountain never runs dry? I know I am. Let's pray together. Now, our Lord, we thank you for your abounding, abundant, never-ending grace. We're thankful, Lord, that though we are sinners, you've still loved us. And you wish to reveal your glory in us. Lord, forgive us for the times that we've revealed everything but your glory, for the times that we've doubted, for the times that we have looked down on others as being less important. But Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes every day so that we can see more of your grace in action and that our life would show forth your holiness and purity more each day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.